It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Jay Redline was 18 when he learned his father's secret. He and some friends were in the basement of his family's Allentown, Pennsylvania home, digging through old photo albums sometime back in the 80s. And these articles fell from behind some photos. And my friend found them. And he's like, oh my God, look at it. Jay stared at the headlines. Allentown gunman shot in Reading Police Clash. James Redline faces murder count today. Redline has one of state's ace lawyers. Redline found guilty of first-degree murder. Redline sentence, life for murder. I was floored. Um, I, I, didn't, I had to look at it over and over again. None of this made sense to Jay. He had grown up around law enforcement. 
His dad was friends with practically every cop and firefighter in town. And my dad got home that night. He, he almost looked terrified when I found out about uh, what he had been involved in. I mean, I, I kind of sprung it on him. Uh, and uh, I don't think he was happy about that, especially with my friends being there. We all sat around like it was, we were about to hear a ghost story, you know, and we are in front of a campfire in the woods. And... My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. Today, we'll be talking about a different kind of crime story on the murder sheet. On its surface, this episode has all the ingredients that you're probably used to by now. A restaurant, a homicide, and a police investigation. But as we dug into this story, we realized that it was quite unusual in several respects. This is a story about violence and death, but it's also about change, community, and rehabilitation. It's a story about murder and redemption and love. We're at the murder sheet, and this is Finding James Redline. The two strangers had a hankering for free and loose women. That's what they told Raymond R. Hirschman, the clerk at the Hand in Hand Cafe. Such requests weren't unheard of on the seedier side of Reading, Pennsylvania. Hirschman and Calvin Summers, the restaurant's handyman, knew exactly where to take their two customers. So the four men set off into the cold April night, moving along the railroad line, off to the midway. The Midway Cafe, or Midway Restaurant as it was sometimes called, didn't just have hot meals on the menu. It was also a front for a brothel managed by house madam Mabel Jones. When the group arrived a little after half past midnight, Hirschman slipped away to relieve himself in the restroom and left his new friends to get better acquainted with the girls on staff. He couldn't have imagined what he'd find when he emerged from the bathroom. One of the sex workers approached him, trembling, tears in her eyes. She told Hirschman that the two strangers he'd brought in were robbing the place. The two strangers, dangerous men named Erber Warsek and James Redline, had drawn guns 
and rounded up the sex workers and their clients. They were shaking them down for money and jewelry and watches and muttering about the smallness of the take. They wanted to get into the valuables that were stashed away in the Midway safe. But only Mabel had the key, and she wasn't there. The robbers started to get nasty, pistol-whipping their hostages and making threats. One of the sex workers spoke up, revealing that she knew exactly where Mabel was. The woman with the key to the safe was only a few blocks away, at the bar of the Grand Hotel. Warsak and Redline decided to go get her. The only question was how to manage it. They decided that Warsak would head over to the bar to fetch Mabel, taking one of the hostages from the Midway with him. Redline would stay at the Midway, holding everyone there at gunpoint until Mabel returned. Before Warsak left with his hostage, a young woman who said her name was Ardella Smith, Redline called her aside and asked if she liked her face. She said she did. He told her if she didn't follow instructions, she wouldn't have a face anymore. Warsak then pulled her outdoors and pressed the barrel of his gun in her side. Walk like a movie star, he said. Don't act suspicious and you won't get hurt. He took a breath and then added one more detail. I've already killed one person, he told her, and I wouldn't mind killing another. And then the pair set off in the darkness for the Grand Hotel. We wanted to see where this happened, so we drove to Reading, Pennsylvania to check it out. Our first stop was a parking lot that used to be the site of the Midway restaurant. The building that housed the diner slash brothel is gone. Now just a place to leave your car while you visit a manufacturer of optical materials. The railroad station is still across the street, but the train stopped coming long ago. A couple of years ago, a company converted it into a brew pub. Even from the Midway site, we could hear the sounds of the music the pub played to entertain its well-dressed patrons. We decided to follow the path Ardella and Warsec took that night. We walked along the old railroad tracks, heading for the building once known as the Grand Hotel. The area across from the brew pub was full of decaying residential buildings. It must have been seedy even back in 1956, on the night of the robbery. It was a short walk, a straight shot that took us no more than two minutes, but it must have seemed much longer to Ardella. We could imagine the terror and isolation she must have felt, walking in the night next to the railroad tracks with a man she knew was willing to kill her. The building that used to be the Grand Hotel still stands, but no one would call it Grand anymore. If you look the place up on Google Maps, you will see a gaunt, bearded, and shirtless man staring out of a second-floor window. He was also there when we arrived, as if he had not moved even an inch since Google had captured his image. The building he calls home looked run down, dirty, and badly in need of repair. We could not help but wonder if it appeared different back in 1956. On that April night, blissfully unaware of what was occurring back at her establishment, Mabel sat relaxing at the hotel bar with a couple of her friends when she noticed Ardella come in with a stranger. 
That was not necessarily unusual. Mabel's brothel was right by a busy railroad track. She conducted a lot of business with strangers. But Ardella seemed scared. The man kept his distance as Ardella approached Mabel. It was very important, said Ardella, that Mabel come and talk with the man right away. So Mabel rose and walked with Ardella over to where the man stood. Her friends at the bar watched from a distance. In the noisy din, they couldn't hear what was being said, but they could read Mabel's body language. She seemed uncomfortable, agitated. Something was wrong, something serious. She walked back to her friends, told them she had to go. Glancing over her shoulder, she noticed that the stranger and Ardella had gone outside to wait for her. That meant she could risk telling her companions just a little bit more. There was a holdup in progress at the midway, she said. They should get the police. And then she went outside to meet Ardella and head back to her restaurant with Warsak. Mabel's friends stared at each other for a moment in shock, and then raced outside in time to see Warsak head off with his two hostages. The friends spotted a pair of cops on the street. What a stroke of luck! They let the officers, John Kowalski and Michael Parate, know what was going on, and the two patrolmen set off after Warsak. Maybe if they knew then who he was, they would have been a little more careful. A decade earlier, the police chief in a squad car full of officers showed up at Warsak's Allentown, Pennsylvania house with a reporter in tow to ask Warsak a few pressing questions about a crime spree. Warsak managed to get the jump on them and pull a gun, driving off with the chief as a hostage. That chief, Wayne Elliott, eventually managed to escape, and Warsak got sentenced to a stretch in prison for the whole debacle. He got released early, though, because he convinced the parole board he'd learned his lesson. Unfortunately, the lesson he learned was that taking police officers prisoner was a good way to buy some time when he was in a jam. Warsak heard the steps of the patrolmen behind him, heard the sound of their feet crunching on the rocks by the railroad tracks. He could tell they were getting closer. He knew what to do. He spun around and pointed his weapon at the two dumbfounded police officers. Mabel and Ardella immediately fled. Warsak had two new hostages. But what should he do with them? Mabel's friends saw Warsak disarm and lead away the two officers. So they immediately notified more police. Cop cars started speeding towards the midway. The clock was ticking for Warsak and Redline and their jumble of hostages. Warsak marched Kowalski and Parate back to the midway, forced them upstairs, and locked them in a back room. In his bid to capture the police officers, he let Mabel slip away. The robber's only shot at opening the safe was gone. It was time for him and Redline to get out of there with what little loot they'd been able to pick off the sex workers and their clients. But it was already too late. Squad cars had surrounded the midway. The police lights flashed upon Hirschman and Summers and the other hostages, who Redline was still holding at gunpoint in the restaurant portion of the building. There was nowhere to run. Still, Redline made a go of it. 
He burst out of the restaurant, yelling, you would call the cops, to no one in particular. Then he made eye contact with one of the officers. The man you want is in there, he said, gesturing back at the midway. Apparently, he didn't get the response he was looking for. Redline raised his forty-five caliber revolver, carefully aimed it at the officer who was about 20 feet away, and fired. He took off running. The gathered police officers fired back, hitting Redline. Clutching his bleeding stomach, he crawled under a car that was parked across the street. Next, it was Warsek's turn to step out of the restaurant. The thief and kidnapper, who'd once convinced a parole board to be lenient, was out of tricks to play. He tried to shoot his way out. The police opened fire, until Warsek fell down dead on the steps of the midway. With one of the robbers dead, it didn't take long for a state trooper to drag Redline out from under the car. State police officer put his foot on my dad's throat, put a shotgun down to him. My dad believed he was going to shoot him, but a couple other officers ran up. He said, um, but he wasn't even mad at the cop at that point. My dad was so remorseful for what he had done that um, I I think he was good with whatever played out at that moment. Lying handcuffed to his hospital bed, Redline got some bad news that had nothing to do with the police slug that had gone into his belly. Prosecutors were charging him with not just robbery and kidnapping, but felony murder as well. In his haze of painkillers, Redline must have felt puzzled. The shot he took at the cop had missed. Not only did he not kill the officer, but that bullet hadn't even scratched him. But he had a surprise coming. Redline, who sheltered under a car as Warsek was shot to death by the police, had been charged with the felony murder of his partner. The idea behind the felony murder rule is that felonies are so inherently dangerous that anyone who agrees to participate in one should be held fully responsible for any deaths that occur during the felony, even if someone else actually pulled the trigger. In this case, that meant that even though the police had shot Warsak to death, prosecutors would hold Redline responsible due to the fact that he and Warsak were in the middle of a felony when the death occurred. A jury ended up buying the argument. Redline was convicted of felony murder and sentenced to life in prison. But that wasn't the end of his story. For some reason, Redline got help. Top-flight legal talent started working on his behalf. Maybe that was because the lawyers just wanted to work on an interesting case, Or maybe it was something else. When Redline was arrested, they found 57 packets of heroin in the car he and Warsek had shared. Some wondered if this meant the gunmen had been involved with interests larger than themselves. Interests that were now bankrolling the best possible defense for Redline. In any case, his attorneys took his case all the way to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And they won. The court ruled that it was justifiable homicide for the police officer to take a shot at the rampaging Warsec, and Redline could not be held criminally liable for a legally justifiable act. His conviction got tossed out. 
Redline still needed to serve time on other convictions, most of them involving a string of violent robberies in the nearby town of Pottsville. But he became a model prisoner, even giving police information that helped them bust up a major drug ring. When he finally got out, he met a woman, married her, and had a son named Jay. And he did not talk about his past at all until the day the newspaper articles fell out of the scrapbook. To go through life with all of his friends and my friends and my mother's friends without ever hearing a word about this. And then all of a sudden, all this information is dropped on you at once that depicts that your father was involved in, you know, something that's horrific. Um, It was shocking. It was almost a little scary. We were like, oh, my God, (laughs) maybe he's angry. (laughs) You know, my buddies were, were a little bit paranoid about what his reaction would be, but then I, I think he, he was more embarrassed than angry. I think he was uh, upset with um, the fact that I finally knew. I think maybe he was waiting for the right time to tell me himself, which, you know, he, he had pride, and I think it hurt his pride at that point that I had found out that it was a tough day for him to face me and then my stupid decision to have my friends there at the time, you know, and spring this on him. I think it was a very tough day for him to, to confess to that. Redline tried to explain what had happened forthrightly, and he wanted to leave a message that Jay would never forget. He shot me a look and explained immediately I did my time. I, I was wrong with what I did, and he did even throw in at the end of that conversation, I remember this. He goes, please understand that I will never do anything to hurt you or someone else. Let's take a quick break from the murder sheet to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student turned convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin. 
or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, back to the murder sheet. Do you know what I just retired from doing for a living? Do you you manage uh, a rock band? Well, that's my side gig. Now it's my full-time gig, but I just served as a police lieutenant for over 20 years. So I'm like, I wonder if they know I was a cop after (laughs) what my dad went through. While researching the Midway case, we tracked Jay down on the web. But in all our research and internet stalking, we'd failed to realize that the son of the man convicted for war sex killing was himself a recently retired homicide detective. Yeah, I just retired as a uh, lieutenant over the homicide unit um, out here in the Phoenix area, and I was caught in Pennsylvania. For, for a little while, and then I moved out here and became a cop out here. And climbed through the ranks, did uh, over six years on the SWAT team, worked five years in a pseudo-undercover team, and ended up uh, being a lieutenant my last uh, six years. Jay was a cop, and his father's long-ago crime was his first ever mystery. After the confrontation, Redline did not talk much about the shooting. He never mentioned jail time or what it was like in prison, other than telling us initially what happened with the whole incident. He very ever rarely talked about it. In fact, I learned more by um, signing up for this newspapers.com thing and and looking at some old uh, articles and, and learning about it. But Jay still tried to piece together everything he could find about his dad's background. From his coal country roots to his foster home upbringing, Jay became less interested in what happened at the Midway in April of 1956. 
He really wanted to know what brought his dad to that point, pistol-whipping hostages and riding around with a trunk full of heroin. He kind of fought to be able to make a dime here and there as a young kid and kind of fell into some trouble. And in the area that he grew up in, the way he explained, you had to be tough. You had to know how to fight. You had to know how to make a dollar. You had to find odd jobs or maybe get wrapped up into, you know, some type of petty crime to make money to be able to have shoes on your feet and to feed yourself. Um, He got wrapped up with the wrong people thinking that it was the right way. He was tough. I ain't going to lie. He he carried himself as a a tough man. Not scary, but you just kind of knew not to mess with him if you're another adult or whatnot. Um, He he never backed down from anybody that I had seen. He, He always wanted to be good. And Jay feels what happened after his dad got out of prison proves that. His dad got a good job as a garment cutter and worked hard to provide nice things for his family like a cabin up on Lake Wallenpawpack. He knew how to have a good time. As he grew up, Jay sometimes felt his own friends would rather hang out with his dad. And, perhaps most importantly, Redline raised his son not to repeat his mistakes. He instilled in me, ever since I was a little kid, that, you know, you respect your elders, you respect women, you respect police, and... With his friends being cops, um, and I mean a lot of cops. I mean, he knew like every cop, and they were always at the house and always there for holidays and vacations and everything. And um, it just kind of, the way he carried himself, there, there didn't have to be a lot of words to say, okay, this is the police, you respect them. This, it, it just, it was his mantra, and I, I fell in line because of his actions more than his words. He also became a beloved employee at Allentown's Police Academy and a long-standing volunteer firefighter. But Redline didn't manage this turnaround all on his own. He got help, not just from friends, but from law enforcement officials, like the roller skating parole officer, who'd keep his visits discreet and quick. Looking back and figuring out there was this guy that roller skated past our house like once a week, once a month. Um, He'd roller skate all over the city. Turns out he was a probation or a parole officer for my father. Um, And he'd come up to the front porch, check on my dad while I was there. Everything was cryptic, so I didn't know even as a kid. He also got support from Jay's mom, with whom he fell in love after being released. Their relationship, they complemented each other on how they both lived their life. With all this assistance, Jay believes his father got a chance to become the sort of man he was always meant to be. But some of Redline's underworld friends may have stuck by him, even after he started to go clean. Jay always wondered how his father came about such quality legal representation. My dad just had these weird connections and I always wondered like if the whole mafia thing existed in my dad's world and he was connected enough where there was some relationship higher up people that had helped him have a decent defense I remember um, God, he, all the mayors of Allentown our house um, 
all all these dignitaries that my dad hung around. It was it was quite interesting how he those relationships and and kept them. But Redline also became friends with many local cops and instilled a respect for law enforcement in his son. Jay's feelings for police went beyond respect, though. He dressed as a police officer for Halloween and consistently embraced the role of law enforcement during games of cops and robbers. Jay felt being a police officer was a calling. Later, when he became a cop, Jay would keep his father in mind when dealing with criminals, realizing that everyone deserves respect and that anyone could potentially improve and become better if offered support and kindness at the right time. To this day, I'll run into a gang member that maybe had done 10 years in prison that got out. Maybe I even put them there. And they're able to walk up and shake my hand and talk to me because I know the name of their mother or their sister or their brother. And I can ask, hey, do you still live down on Yuma Street? How's your mom doing? And that's a relationship I tried to foster as a police officer to gain respect of the community and give respect to the community. Trust me, it makes your job so much easier as a cop when you don't talk down to people and you go to work and you can walk into that neighborhood and you don't necessarily have to have your head on a swivel worry about people throwing rocks at your head because you treated them with respect. Even though you may have taken them to jail, you treated them with respect when you did so. And that's how I played my whole career out, and it absolutely worked for me. People are going to make mistakes. You still respect them. You talk nice. Jay's friends on the force weren't the only ones to love and respect his father. Redline got affection and help from a wide variety of sources. Some of the strongest support the Redlines received came from a place no one would have expected, from the members of a popular rock and roll group. My best friend, lead singer Fuel, who I started hanging around and I'd go see a concert. They were becoming famous. And Kevin was nice enough, and so was Brett, lead singer, to, hey, we'll, t- we'll keep an eye on your dad for you. So they bring them the concert to bring them back stage. Redline strove to be worthy of this support and to be as helpful to others as they were to him, becoming the type of friend you could call when you needed a hand with painting or anything else. But no one meant as much to Redline as his own family. We wanted to see the place that meant so much to Jay and his father. One afternoon in September, we drove to Waltz Point on Lake Wallenpawpack. It was the dying edge of the season, but you could easily imagine the place packed with families and young people, soaking in the summer on a blistering day in June or July. Even in the early autumn, there were people on their boats, laughing and drinking and enjoying the calm waters underneath the lovely large sky. They appeared more working class than wealthy, and they seemed a tight-knit bunch too, as if this was a special place where the same families kept coming back year after year. They certainly looked a bit alarmed at our intrusion, but then again we were walking around stealthily attempting to record the tiny waves, so that's not too surprising. After a while, we hiked to the isolated spot where Jay and his family would swim during the summer. It was quiet and still. A man and his dog played on the other side of the bend in the lake, and a boat sputtered far off the shore. 
Large gray rocks stacked on top of each other littered the area. The surrounding woods were dense and drenched in moss and caterpillar silk. As we trekked along the trail, we heard deer crashing through the brush here and there. It was lovely, the sort of remote, peaceful place you could come to both enjoy others' company or simply to unwind in a beautiful, natural setting. We could understand why this area meant so much to Jay and his father. We used to go walleye fishing on Lake Walmart Fall Pack every weekend. And all the boats would go out together at night, fish late in the night. All the guys would be talking on the CD. And I remember being mad at my dad. I was probably like 10 or 12. And I caught this massive fish. And I'm, I'm talking, I do a lot of fishing. This thing had to be like 40, 50 pounds. And that's monster for Lake Wall Paul Pack. And we're getting up the side of the boat. My dad went to put it in the net, and he bumped it off of the hook, and it disappeared. I was so pissed. <laughs> and I cried all the way back on the boat ride. Um, and, and, you know, he would bring that up constantly. Remember that time I bumped that fish off on you? Jay also remembers how much his mother meant to his father. But he and my mom got along great. I think my dad was heartbroken when she had passed away. I had a dog named Sugar at that point, and my dad was used to driving up the cabin with my mom every Friday. Well, that dog got to sit in the front seat now, and he was inseparable with, with the dog. I think the dog helped save his life after my mom passed away because he just needed that companionship. And although it's a dog not going to talk to you obviously i think it helped him get through my mom passing but they had a good relationship and he was very good to her then the day came when jay decided it was time to leave home i I felt heartbroken that i was leaving him but jay knew that his dad wouldn't be alone and it wouldn't just be his police buddies checking in every day my boys from fuel great band. They were famous at the time, but they always took time to take care of my father. It was crazy. In fact, it was Jay's friend, fuel drummer Kevin Miller, who gave him the heads up that his father had been hospitalized. Jay was on the other side of the country, attending SWAT school in Arizona. Jay called Redline, telling his father that he would immediately return home to be with him during his illness. I said, hey, I'm going to leave SWAT school and fly back today. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, what do you got? I go, I got one week left. He goes, you finish that damn school. I'm going to stay alive. Don't worry. You'll, you'll have time to see me. Jay graduated the course and returned to Pennsylvania. He stayed with his dad until the end. The day before he passed away, he was laying in bed. He was bedridden. He was still stuck here. He looked at me and he goes, I hate that you have to be here taking care of me, you know, uh, in this way. He goes, I will die today, but my heart's too strong. It, I can't die. He goes, my heart won't quit. And it, it just, it was shocking to hear a, a man on his deathbed talk that tough to where he was like, I'm, I'm okay with dying, but my heart's just too strong. It won't stop. Jay was holding his dad's hand when he died the following day. Jay also thinks about the night when he was about eight. The family was out at the cabin on the lake. His dad awoke him at one in the morning. 
we drove down to this overlook area and I got to see this lunar eclipse and I just that always stuck for some reason in my head. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast or by searching Murder Sheet. For exclusive content like bonus episodes and case files, become a patron of The Murder Sheet on Patreon at patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you enjoyed listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>